0: We are not retiring the USS Harry S. Truman. I spoke to President Trump this morning at the White House. told him that there were budget discussions taking place over the future of this ship. We reflected on the incredible history and contributions, past and present, of the USS Truman. President Trump told me to announce that we are not retiring the Truman. We're going to keep this great ship in the fight for many years to come. welcome back to Banter, the official policy podcast of the American Enterprise Institute. I'm Matt Weinsett. And I'm Max Frost. And as a reminder, new episodes of Banter are available every week on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. And if you like this podcast, please rate us and leave a positive review. So, Max, who do we have on tap for today?
1: Today we've got Rick Berger. He's a defense fellow here at AEI. And we're going to talk about an essay he just wrote in War on the Rocks. Um, the essay was called Hard Choices and Strategic Insolvency, Where the National Defense Strategy Falls Short. And the main theme of the conversation is how this national defense strategy, which kind of lays out how there's a a mismatch between that and the budget and where we should go from here in order to get our capabilities to align with our strategic goals.
0: And Rick really knows this stuff. He's a research fellow at AEI right now in the Foreign and Defense Policy Studies. And he used to work for the U.S. Senate as a staffer on the U.S. Senate Budget Committee where he worked on defense and foreign affairs issues. So there's really no better person to talk to than this. So without further ado, here's Rick.
1: Rick, welcome back to Banter. Good to see you, Max. Good to see you, too. What about me? Oh, I guess you're there, too. Yeah, thanks. I'm Matt. Thanks. So, I want to talk about this new piece you wrote for War on the Rocks with Mackenzie Eaglin, Hard Choices and Strategic Insolvency Where the National Defense Strategy Falls Short. First, can you tell us a bit, what is the National Defense Strategy?
2: Sure. So, the National Defense Strategy is published after the National Security Strategy. National Security Strategy, written by the White House, normally a kind of lowest common denominator document that says we're gonna do a little bit of everything we need a whole of government approach and all this the national defense strategy comes after and says how do we implement part of the national security strategy with the Defense Department with the military after the national defense strategy there's a national military military strategy that's classified we don't really know much about it Um, but the national defense strategy is supposed to say here's what you have to do military here are your mission sets uh, what you're supposed to be able to achieve and here's how you're going to achieve them. It's pretty simple in the past. It's been again a very i don't want to say boring, but not a document that would move anyone to change anything and the twenty eighteen national defense strategy was a little bit different in that respect.
0: how so how How has this changed since the like bush and Obama years Is the, has the has their grand strategy shifted a lot? Yeah, so that's at the heart of all of this.
2: The national defense strategy, which has been Under different names, they used to be called quadrennial defense reviews, which is, you could hardly think of something more revolting to name a document. Um, We've been doing them every two to four years since the end of the Cold War. And basically back then, the core of a strategy is how you size the force. What is it supposed to be able to do? After the end of the Cold War, we said, we looked at what we did in Iraq in 1991, and we looked at our worries about North Korea in the 90s, and we said- what our military has to be able to do at a really high basic level is simultaneously defeat North Korea and Iraq. And now today you could basically insert Iran for Iraq, but we basically had this two simultaneous regional challenger strategy since the end of the Cold War, and that's how we've always measured the size of the military, how capable it is, uh, how ready a force it is. Now. The 2018 National Defense Strategy, Secretary Mattis came in, and and this has been a bipartisan effort over a number of years, and said, we've totally been missing Russia and China. So the 2014 strategy started to worry about China a little bit, but this was pre-the Russian invasion of Crimea. It was pre-Ukraine, and when that document was written. So it didn't really take into account the full scope of what it would mean to deter and defeat Russia and China. This new strategy says, basically, take that two-war standard And apply it to Russia and China and that is a much more ambitious way to measure what our military is supposed to be able to do it was a sea change in American defense strategy we had never really focused on Russia and China since the end of the Cold War like we are now and everybody's swimming in the same direction
1: so a bit of a softball question here how is the budget stacking up to that
2: it is not stacking up well so what we got in the budget for 2020, which is the, the fiscal year that we're trying to deal with now, that's supposed to fully reflect this strategy, $733 billion was the original request. The budget in 2019 was $716 billion. And I don't do math all that well. Just kidding. No, but really. Um,
0: <laughs> all right, White Goodman.
2: Yeah, thank you.
1: I'm just kidding. But seriously, I've got it.
2: You run those numbers... And that's a flat budget. It's It gets eaten up by growth, inflation growth. So this very basic mismatch exists in my view and in the view of hopefully many others that if you ask the military to do a ton more and give it the same amount of money, you're going to have some problems. And the problems that we're having now it basically revolve around the people who wrote this strategy said, we are going to focus on Russia and China. Fighting those wars would be miserable, losing them would be even worse. We need to deter both of those countries and, if necessary, defeat them. And to do that, to pay for it, let's say we need 60 to 70 billion dollars a year, we can pay for it by doing less in the Middle East, doing less in Africa, doing less of this sort of reassurance and presence missions, military exercises that we do with our allies and partners. Reality is, we never do anything like that. We never do less, we never make choices. It's fine for me to sit here as a technocrat who works in defense and say, we really need to focus on Russia and China. We can take some risk in the Middle East. You go try to make that argument to a politician or to the American people, and it's much, much more difficult. So this is the core of the disconnect in my mind is we were supposed to be able to do this much more ambitious strategy under a flat budget because we could make these strategic choices. The reality is we never have, we almost certainly never will. We only ever give the military more missions to
0: do. Yeah, even that assumption that we could do it on a flat budget seems kind of silly when China and Russia have billions of more people than the Middle East, right, and North Korea. So I would I'd would imagine, it, wouldn't it be obvious that we need to devote way more resources if we're going to have that new mission instead? Well, I think that's apparent in just,
2: if you take the old two-war standard yeah. and you say, you look at what you need to do against a a, a contingency in North Korea or against Iran, which has been in the news uh, again, and you know, we're talking about hundreds of thousands of people in each case, but those militaries are not that advanced. They pose their own kind of specific problems, but we haven't fought a war like war with Russia or China would be since World War II, and this is a whole different level of fighting a peer who has spent 20 years in this case, almost 30 now, um, emulating what we do and figuring out exactly how to beat us. This is China or
0: Russia or both?
2: Both, yeah. but particularly China, yes. Yeah.
0: Is this shift to new focus on the great power conflict, is that a smart shift? I mean, just just from my layman's point of view, I would think, wouldn't like, the theory of mutually assured destruction kind of imply that we're probably never going to fight Russia and China because we both have huge nuclear arsenals, whereas I would think that would make you know, warfare more likely in the Middle East and North Korea where they can't challenge us on the nuclear level I just can't imagine a situation where we engage in total warfare with China or Russia. So why focus on them?
2: So I think there's a number of different answers to that. One, total warfare, the nuclear side of this is is setting that aside. What the national defense strategy is most worried about is conventional warfare. Um, our advantage in that realm, so conventional meaning not using any nuclear weapons, um, has eroded over the last 30 years such that, I'll just give you one example. Uh, there's a great recent study by RAND that looked at what it would take for us to maintain air superiority over Taiwan if the Chinese had to, tried to take Taiwan back. Back in the 90s, it would only have taken us a couple of squadrons. The Chinese have advanced such that we could deploy the entire U.S. Air Force to Japan and Guam and still not be able to maintain air superiority over Taiwan. Obviously, that's a super simplistic way of measuring it. But... That is the kind of thing that's happened across multiple uh, domains in the air, at sea, certainly in space. Obviously, shout out Space Force, not happening this year, but that's okay. Damn. So it's it's a it's across the board. These sorts of erosions of our military advantage have occurred. So yes, like in a in a general sense, I think it's awesome that people are finally starting to take Russia and China seriously, particularly in Congress. Um, you've probably heard on other versions of this podcast that other episodes, that people really agree about the threat that China poses. Russia is still a little partisan just because of um, what happened with the 2016 election. But in the military sphere, no less worrying what they've uh, managed to accomplish since the end of the Cold War. So I think that's all great. I just think policymakers, lawmakers um, should look at readying the military, the US military to deter China and Russia as an additive, an additional demand upon the force, not necessarily something that can be sort of done on the cheap. And in regards to what we're most worried about, I think we're mostly worried about sort of fait accompli strategies where the Chinese or the Russians have localized superiority and we just can't do enough
0: in time. You can't deter we, them at all that way.
2: Yeah, we still have we still have a very uh, capable military, but most of it is here. Um, even though people sometimes freak out about how much of our military is in overseas bases, when you look at the Chinese navy compared to not the U.S. navy, but what, and not the Pacific Fleet, but what the United States has in the Seventh Fleet in Japan, uh, as well as the Third Fleet, it's a little worrying. Um, you can there's plenty of ways to put these trend lines down, but that's really what you have to look at is these very localized campaigns that could spiral out of control and become a much larger total war type mm-hmm. scenario.
1: Now, this may only be tangentially related here, but how does, you know, Iran fit into this? Um, if you're talking about China and Russia shifting away from the Middle East at the same time we've had all these increased, inten- yeah. increased tensions with Iran, what we just sent an aircraft carrier to right. the Persian Gulf. Um, it seems like that would be kind of not, like, what's the, what's the goal there? Uh, is there Or how does, like, the defense community see this? So a lot of them, the people who are in favor of this, uh, what I'll call the
2: pivot away from everything else to Russia and China, were really mad about Iran. Because from their perspective, they had written this great strategy document, which, again, love the focus on Russia and China. They had written this. They had said, we're going to make hard choices. We're not going to do things like play around with Iran. And then, you know, not but a year later... The president uh, is sending, taking a carrier that was already in the Mediterranean uh, doing a very high-profile deterrence mission against the Russians, pulled it away from that, and sent it back to the Persian Gulf or the Arabian Sea, however you want to slice that one. i yeah. um, not going to take a side. But they had pulled a little bit of stuff out of the Middle East, and they're now sending it all back. And, and that's kind of the, the gist of this whole thing, is you cannot You have to assume that you're not going to be able to overcome politics. For, as a defense planner, this is agnostic on whether what we're doing right now vis-a-vis Iran is a good idea or not. It's just, I mean, same thing with the Obama administration in Libya. Like, you have to price these things into the way you do defense planning. Otherwise, you always end up flitting back and forth, trying to pivot. And the reality is that this massive 4 million person enterprise, the U.S. military, that you know takes 15 years to build major weapons can, is not a nimble organization.
0: Yeah, it's yeah. It's been a while since I've read the book, but Brett Stevens had that book, America in Treat, that I read a few years ago, and he, I think he talks about how China's been building something. I think he calls it assassins' mace, basically weapons yeah. just designed to destroy our weapons. So when we talk about moving aircraft carriers around to you know, I guess intimidate people, how. <laughs> How safe are aircraft carriers nowadays? I imagine with the age of the missile technology we have now, couldn't the Chinese just take out aircraft carriers pretty easily in the South China Sea in the event of a conflict there?
2: Yeah. So the, the carrier is actually at the heart of the debate yeah. about strategic choices in terms of weapon systems. The Pentagon tried to uh, decommission a carrier early. So all carriers have to do midlife uh, refuelings to get get their uh, nuclear reactor back up to snuff. And the Pentagon said, we're not going to do that for the USS Truman. And everybody who has talked to Congress said that's never going to happen. They're never going to let that retire. And then in this kind of cruel twist of fate, the White House actually reversed the decision itself. <laughs> uh, Vice President Pence did, standing on the deck of the Truman. And it kind of, it, again, pro- entirely proved my point that maybe carriers are more vulnerable. And like that's a separate discussion. The way that they had framed it at the Pentagon was as a budgetary decision to retire this carrier. But... Politics is always going to
0: be there. But, but from, like, the military tech... Yeah, point of yeah, view. yeah. So I, I think, maybe I'm misremembering this, too, but I think World War II was kind of the eclipse of the battleship and the aircraft carrier yep. took over in prominence. Yep. Are we going to approach a new era where the aircraft carrier just is no longer as important as it used to be? Because I don't know what their defenses are like, but I just imagine if China's got these, like, land-to-air missiles in on these little artificial islands they've built, yeah. how do we even stop those from knocking out a carrier pretty easily?
2: So, there were there actually was a real debate in the Pentagon this year, I think, for the first time ever. We've had this argument about carriers multiple times in the United States history. Yeah. The carrier has always been the most prominent example of our military power, because we're a global power. Yeah. Uh, so it's really you're paying yeah, they're expensive. They're more than $10 billion a piece. but it's a swimming, floating airfield. Oh, yeah. I love them. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> I'm,
0: I'm worried about their safety, though. Yeah.
2: The Chinese have built what are called um, anti-ship ballistic missiles, specifically for the purpose of sinking American carriers. I don't think that this is the game-changer that people view it to be. We said the same thing about the Soviets using bombers with long-range cruise missiles in the late 70s, early 80s. Uh, Tom Clancy wrote a book about this. Off in uh, October? No, uh, Redstone Rising. All right. It was the central conceit of that there's an attack on carriers. and. Um, the Soviets do some damage. I mean, the carrier has never been invulnerable, yeah. but when you think about what the alternative to delivering American ordnance overseas is, all our bases in Japan and in Guam are vulnerable to the exact same thing, and they can't move. So when we talked about the carrier this year, a lot of people's question when it the Pentagon made the case to retire it was, what replaces it? And we've started to talk about dispersing some of our our giant bases abroad. But, like, you can... I could pull out satellite pictures right here. The Chinese have um, mock-ups in the their western desert of all our naval bases and air bases in Japan. Mm. And you can actually see they have little kind of battleship, like the game battleship, yeah. cutouts of our ships huh. and our aircraft carriers and all our aircraft on the ground. And they practice with, you know, live weapons hitting them. Hmm. Um, So there's no good answer
0: to how to project power and- But they're not obsolete anymore, obviously.
2: No, we've always found a way to fight through these things. And um, we did it in the 80s. There was a lot of innovation. Um, This whole thing has been a little bit distracting because we really should be talking about, the carrier's just a, again, it's a floating airfield. We should be talking about what we put on the carriers, which is a much more interesting discussion. So have we essentially pivoted away
1: from concerns about terrorism? Uh, Well, you would think to listen to some people. Well, it it just, it just, with all the emphasis now on China and Russia, I mean, what if, you know, God forbid, there's another 9-11 and they find that the attack came out of, I don't know, Mali, Mm -hmm. you know, do we have any, are we equipped at all to deal with that kind of, that kind of conflict?
2: I think we're we're definitely equipped. The question is, do we have the number of people who would be necessary? Yeah. This is, this is a key point of mine, and it's not explicitly written in the piece, but uh, even if you believe that pulling... Let's say we spend $50 billion a year in the Middle East, mostly doing counterterrorism stuff, even if you want to stop doing all that stuff, you have to be worried about exactly what you just said, Max, which is that we have another 9-11 style event and you can be sure that what we're going to do after that is exactly what we've been doing for the past almost two decades since 9-11. So, again, in my mind, we can always try to convince everyone that terrorism should be a lower priority, but the reality is that that's going to take a lot of time, And, and the Obama administration tried to do this. In smaller countries in Europe, sometimes it's worked well. The idea of resiliency against terrorism, I think that's worked well here in terms of lone wolf, terrorist attacks, the kind of small, um, even if they're, you know, Al-Qaeda or ISIS-directed guys with machetes or hitting people with cars. But when you think about the big, spectacular attack, yeah, I I mean, that's, we're going to be back doing exactly what we're doing. We have the capability to do it. Um, There are certain parts of the military that are uh, building in, have recognized that this is a generational conflict, and have thought seriously about how to Maintain the not only the kind of like knocking down the door, killing guys part of this, but also the cultural part of it, um, it, so that it doesn't atrophy in the way that we've let it before, again and again.
0: Yeah. So I mean, between the new focus on Russia and China and the continued focus on terrorism in the Middle East, the the flat defense budget is just not going to do do it, right? With the we we got we got to spend more money, right? Essentially. Yeah,
2: or we can decide not to do things, but in the absence of doing that we need to spend more money uh, or figure out some really big questions about the defense budget. I mean, half of the defense budget now is just people. Um, The defense budget has its own entitlement spending crisis Mm -hmm. that we can't deal with. Um, There there are some ways you can get around this, right? I mean, you could replace a lot of the kind of low-skilled cooks, transportation people with some degree of automation as is already happening in the civilian sector, and we and we talk about in terms of robots peop- taking people's jobs, that's one way to, to cut the size of the force, but yeah. there's nothing that I see on the horizon that is going to whiz-bang, make, kind of make up for the fact that
0: our people can't be in two places at once. Yeah. I mean, look, you know, I'm totally on board with more defense spending, but isn't that a very hard case to make? I was just talking anecdotally with, you know, my fellow millennials. Yeah. Everybody always said, you hear so much people complaining, oh, the U.S. spends... As much as the next five nations combined on defense, that's yeah. just absurd. Why do we do that? I know my former boss judged a competition one time. Uh, Jim has judged a competition one time where like, millennials put together their own way for balancing the federal budget. And yeah. every single group, uh, priority number one, cut the defense budget. Yeah. So it just seems like how do you go out there and convince people that, hey, we do actually need to spend more money right. when we already spend so much? So that's one of my huge frustrations is that I think the
2: president really does want to rebuild the military. I don't think he's getting very good advice within the White House from acting, putting the emphasis on that, Chief of Staff Mick Mulvaney, um, who has never met a part of the defense budget that he didn't like. Okay. Um, no, you have to have presidential leadership in this area because I understand that the budget is large and that views about it are changing. You could, We could abolish the U.S. military $700 billion a year. I mean, we're still going to be we're still going to add another $12 trillion in debt over the next 10 years. The yeah. I mean, defense budget is 5% of that problem. Mm. So in my mind, there's a lot of context work that needs to be done in a defense budget. When you talk about how big the defense budget is compared to Russia and China, well, yes, of course, we spend $700 billion and the Russians and the Chinese. You know, the Chinese probably spend like 250 something like that. It's hard to tell with their budget since none of it is really public. But as I said before... We're pitting maybe a fourth or a third of our military against their entire force. Yeah. Um, they also you have to adjust it for purchasing power parity. We really don't spend more than Russia and China. When you start to make some adjust some real adjustments, uh, just the fact is we also pay our people a lot more, um, which theoretically, you know, it's hard to measure that, but our people are much better. But when you get down to it at the end of the day, we could spend, I mean, this doesn't have to go on in perpetuity. You could spend $500, $600 billion over the next five, six, seven years and fix a lot of the problems uh, vis-a-vis Russia and China that we need to. My point in writing this piece was kind of to explain to everyone that that's the scale of the investment that's needed. And instead, what we got from the administration, which is not a real number of... Is this 733 number that's flat? Secretary Mattis and General Dunford, who's our highest-ranking chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, uh, said we needed three to five percent real growth. And there's some complaints with how that actually was calculated and what it means. But it's about the same amount of money. You you really need to dig out of the hole of sequestration over the past ten years and realize that we're we've been. We went to the bottom of the hole, you know, just as the Russians and the Chinese were starting to pick up speed. So we're now standing flat and starting to move in the right direction. But they've
1: got a serious head start. So, yeah, I'm curious. I and mean, the last time you are on the show, we talked about the emergency. No, I don't want <laughs> I don't want it. I mean, the, this can be very, very very brief. I just haven't heard anything about that, probably, like, since about the time we had you on the show. Yeah. Has, did the military push back? Or what ended up happening with that?
2: So the emergency stuff is moving very, very slowly. Um, what's what we have had movement on is there was a there was a second part of this, which they basically took money from within the defense budget, and have moved it around two point five billion dollars. That has not garnered a ton of attention, but I think it's been a huge deal. Every year, the the Congress and the Pentagon have this agreement that the Pentagon would get some funding flexibility, because. So Congress is supposed to sign off on these things. The administration just did it unilaterally, so now that funding flexibility is dead in the future, um, which makes an even larger problem for the military. You can see the effects of this this year. The bases at Tyndall Air Force Base in Florida, Camp Lejeune, Offutt Air Force Base basically needed a little more than $2 billion to clean up from hurricanes. the hurricanes eight, nine months ago. They still don't have that money. Because the disaster aid bill is still held up, they could have basically moved that money around internally months ago. But because of this internal movement of border wall funding, they haven't been able to. Okay. Um, so it's really set that back, and that's the that's an example of like, you know, stuff happens during the year, and you need flexibility for it. But they just the administration also just had a negative uh, court decision against it, so. We're finally into the phase where probably all of this is going to lock up because of the courts. They were supposed to send out a list. Uh, you know, we already have the main list. There's a I did a map on it of all the military construction projects that are almost certainly going to get
0: raided. But I think everything is really in a holding pattern now. Yeah. And Yeah. I know. Last time you were on here, we also talked briefly about uh, the Chicago Bears at the end. I That's right. right. I got some positive feedback from my my friend Stephen Ayello, who loved that section. He's a Bears fan. That's so great. He wants your opinion. <laughs> last time we talked was uh, right after the heartbreak and double-doink playoff loss. Now we're talking much later. <sighs> we've, we've gone through free agency in the draft. How do you feel? Can they beat the Packers this year? Can they beat the Vikings? Thank you for your
2: support, Steve. I appreciate it. I also
0: just bought tickets to go see the Bears
2: in Philly oh, in you're November. Not, you're so not coming back. I'm not coming back from that one. <laughs> I feel great about the season. Uh, very good. We had the number one draft pick, which was obviously Khalil Mack from the pick we traded away last year. Uh, feel great about Montgomery. I think we're going to exceed the uh, performance from last year. We have one of the toughest schedules, but this is a team. So it's a brotherhood. It's a family that thrives on uh, adversity and being underestimated. Like your New England Patriots, Matt.
0: Yeah, no one believes in us either. But somehow, that's right. Somehow we, <laughs> that's
2: exactly right. Somehow
0: we always pull through.
2: Everyone wrote off the Pats last year. I remember all those hot takes. They did they with always, joy in my
0: heart. They always do. <laughs> all right, go Pats, go Bears. Well, uh, thanks for coming on, Rick. All right. Thank you guys for having me again. Talk to you again next time.
1: Thanks for listening. We hope that you enjoyed. Please be sure to rate and review. Leave us five stars and a nice comment. We'll read it out on the show. Um, We'll be back next week with Chris Arnade. If you don't know, if you don't recognize his name,
0: you will probably recognize him from Twitter. He made a name for himself during the 2016 election, taking photographs of people in, you know, quote unquote, left behind America. He's out with a new book called Dignity, which focuses on the plight of the working class. And we think he'll be a great guest, and that'll be
1: out next week. Yeah, so hopefully you'll listen then, and we'll see you next week.
0: Did this hit the upright and the crossbar? Bottom line, it doesn't go through upright. It looks like it bounced off the crossbar as well. Oh my goodness. The Bears season's going to end on a double doink.